Good morning. Good morning. Jesus. 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 There's just something about that name. Powerful name. We're going to learn a little bit more about him this morning. But first off, I have a task for two young men. Isaac and Isaiah, can I get you to help me out here? Can you pass out one sheet to each person on this side? One sheet to each person on this side? Don't give them the black ones. This is not to take notes on. Uh, This is not a test. It's for an activity later. And uh, so, anyway. So as you've, uh, how can I introduce this? I am thrilled about eschatology. And when Pastor Jane came up and presented what she presented recently, I went, oh no. My, My flesh response was, oh no. I've got something similar on a timeline that the Lord laid on me a month, month and a half ago when Pastor Colin asked me to take over this Sunday to preach. So I went, oh no, Lord, what do I do? I don't want to be the same. And he said, oh, you're not the same. What you're going to present isn't going to be the same. The title, I guess you would call this, is He's Coming. And, of course, that automatically brings us to end times in our life in Christ. You see the word history. And don't we all have histories? We all have something we've done in life, we've worked at, clawed at, created, failed at. There's some kind of history in our life. Uh, Things that we've uh, accomplished, uh, relationships that we've gotten into or relationships we've gotten out of. business interactions, all kinds of history. I I could go on all day with details about history. But in all that, in all that history that we have, in all the history of every person who has ever been on this planet, the key point in their lives is not their history, but the linguistics and morphology of this word comes from this. His story. No matter who you are, you are in some way affected by his story. You are either in him and for him and having a wonderful, blessed future ahead of you or you're not, and you're outside him, and you're clawing and coping and trying to make the best life you can on this planet, and you're still away from him. He is the pivot point. His story is the pivot point of every life that has ever been on this planet and ever will be. What you do with Jesus is key. I read a book years ago. It was called Pictures of Christ in Genesis. And that was the foundation for what the Lord laid on my heart. And he said, we're going to go a little further. Um, What I've depicted here is 
the timeline of the Bible. And it goes from before Genesis to the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, found from Genesis to Revelation in the Bible. What I want to show here is, excuse me, that the light of his revelation, this is, this is the picture, if you want to put the whole Bible in a nutshell, this is the picture of the revelation of Jesus. It's his story. And the light of his revelation shines down through history. And when it hits the pivotal point of this event, the light creates a shadow down through the Old Covenant. And the shadow tells you a little bit at the beginning, in fact, before the beginning of Genesis 1.1. Scripture bears out that Jesus Christ was slain before the foundations of the world. So I've been in congregations where Genesis, the events of Genesis, Adam, Eve, seemed to be a surprise. They, they looked at it like it was a surprise to God that they sinned, that he didn't expect it. Scripture doesn't bear that out. <clears throat> God, I guess what the Lord wanted me to show you about this very before the beginnings of the foundations of the world is, if you have a problem, if you have a challenge as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and having the revelation that God loves you, Put it this way. Have you ever done something or planned to do something or planned to create something in your own life, in your own activity, and it failed? It fell flat on the floor, down the drain, flushed out. Totally failed. Would you do the same thing again? And the thing is, with creation, the f- and I don't, I don't like using the word the fall. I think the fall is a, a religious-spirited word to smooth out what happened with Adam and Eve. Eve was deceived. The fall makes it look like Adam tripped. Oh, I'm in sin. No. Scripture bears out Adam jumped. He knew full well. Scripture bears out that Adam was not deceived. He knew when he bit the fruit exactly what would happen. So then, so that in sense creates the heft, the heft of the sin inheritance that we get, and the heft of the price that Jesus had to pay. So, it was not a surprise. God knew exactly what was going to happen. His awesome and fearful creation 
was still going forward because he loved even the concept of you and I and everybody here. He loved the concept of his creation, mankind. He did it anyway. He knew the price he would end up paying. He did it anyway and started it and did it. So it was not a surprise when Adam took the bite. Scripture says, for by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all sinned. He's the one responsible. And because it didn't surprise God, God already had a plan. And it's found at this point, just a little bit after creation, in Genesis 3.15. And that talks about the seed and the enmity between the woman and the serpent and the enmity between her seed and his seed and how his seed, or sorry, how it the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head and he would bruise his heel. And I, what, I, what I found in that was, what interesting was that it's a picture. It's the first verse that talks about Jesus coming. He's coming. And it talks about a person. The verse didn't just give you an, an abstract, uh, sorry, an abstract idea. He said his heel. Talks about a person. Talks about Jesus. It's interesting also in the very same chapter, there's a second a second picture of the coming Jesus. And it talks about God, the Father, clothing Adam and Eve. It says he provided them skins and clothed them. And Oftentimes a question came up in my own life, in my own life in Christ and growing and learning. What, what were these skins? And it bears out in following verses, following chapters in Genesis, that the animal that was killed, the first violence in Scripture, an animal, innocent animal, no responsibility to the actions of Adam at all. An innocent animal was killed. And they were used, the bloody skins were used to clothe Adam and Eve. And it bears out that that animal was a lamb. And people have asked me, you know, today they might say, preacher, how do you know it was a lamb? Well, it bears out with Abel's testimony. Because Abel, when he came and made an offering to the Lord, he offered of the firstlings of his flock. And his offering was respected and accepted. His brother's Cain's was not. Because it wasn't the plan. Adam and Eve receiving those skins, those bloodied skins of an innocent, innocent animal, a lamb, 
In essence, they received the plan that God had about Jesus Christ. And their testimony to their sons bore out. One rebelled against, wanted to do his own thing. The other offered the firstlings of his flock, offered the lamb. The offering was good, according to God, was respected and accepted. The first voice of that, of that shadow back in history, his story, is he's coming. The Lamb of God is coming. A little ways further is Isaac. Isaac, in Genesis chapter 22, 7 and 8, we, I believe most of us know the story. Um, Abraham was given a promise to have nations in his future. They were going to come from his seed. He was an old man. His wife was an elderly woman. And they didn't have any anticipation for having children. Abraham was 100. Sarah was 90. And so this birth of Isaac was going to be a miracle. And then in later years after, God puts Abraham to a test. And the test was to encourage Abraham's faith. It speaks of Abraham's believing the promise and the covenants beforehand that he embraced them and believed it. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. So this, this is a doing of his faith when God asks him to sacrifice Isaac. And Isaac, as they're going on the trail, it took three days to get to Mount Moriah. And they took some men with them, and when they got to a certain point, they left the men behind, and then the son, Isaac, and Abraham continue on to the place where the sacrifice would happen. And on the way, it happens that Isaac's been given the Responsibility for carrying the wood. Abraham's carrying the fire and a knife. And Isaac gets curious. And I'm just going to paraphrase. Basically, he says, Dad, we've got the wood. We've got the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And in prophecy, Abraham, the spirit dropped down on him, says... God will provide himself a lamb. He's coming. Another picture of Jesus. Another picture of the sacrifice coming that was necessary for the salvation of mankind. God will provide a sacrifice. A a lamb. God will. himself a lamb he's coming his story is all about him doing something he doesn't sit back and do nothing it's all about him doing something for our sake because he loved us before creation that he would do it anyway and knew the price he would have to pay 
it just happens to be that Mount Moriah is where present-day Jerusalem sits. There's conjecture or speculation that it's possible that the very spot that Isaac was to be sacrificed is the spot where the cross stood when Jesus was crucified. He's coming. The voice, the shadow gets louder, bigger. And you can see that the promise is coming to be. The next event would be in Egypt. And the Passover. Now this this dissertation is not exhaustive. I'm just bringing out key points, key pictures, key times where the voice gets louder that he's coming. And the Passover in Genesis 12, God plans on pushing Pharaoh to the limit. And he declares to Moses that I'm going to take the firstborn of your children and your animals. And I've got a plan. If you want to believe it, again, I'm paraphrasing. If you want to believe this, I've got a plan. And he said, this is what you need to do. You need to put the blood of a lamb, one without blemish, perfect, and you just sacrifice and collect his blood. And it's interesting that they were to take, and this is going to represent hyssop, and the blood of that innocent, spotless lamb. Are we seeing a trend about the lamb? Takes the blood of that innocent, spotless lamb, sacrifices him, collects the blood, and they were to dip the hyssop into the blood. And like a fine crafter, they were to touch here and there. Am I right? No, this, this wasn't a craft painting job. This wasn't a uh, recreation. The violence that was shown in the very first sacrifice of a lamb is shown on the doorposts in Goshen, in Egypt. Those who believed they would dip the hyssop into the blood of the lamb and they hit the doorpost and hit the lentil. And as the sopping blood marked the door and dripped onto the threshold, if you can use your imagination to see that, part of me would have loved to make a mess. I really would have. But if you could see with your imagination, with the spirit's eye, that the blood was dripping on these doorposts and threshold, they formed a bloody cross. In the Psalms, David mentioned about being 
between the dogs and having his hands and feet pierced. Prophecy about the the crucifixion. 800 years before the Romans even considered crucifixion as an act of execution for criminals. God sets things up. God shows pictures. God is not a God of darkness. He doesn't keep you in the dark on purpose. He may limit you for a time so you can learn and accept and receive, but he's not about darkness. He's shown the pictures. He's speaking the words. He's coming. This door... The blood on the door was the stand outside against the wages of sin. It was the stand against sin, death, and the grave. And inside is the foundation for the Lord's Supper, the Seder dinner, where they were to be prepared They were encouraged by Moses, by the Lord, to be prepared, be ready. They were to eat the meal in haste, but in peace and security that God had a plan. The Passover says, in fact, the Passover shouts, he's coming. As we go into the law, uh, take the Ten Commandments. I found it interesting as I learned, learned about it and studied it a bit that the very first five uh, commandments of the Ten Commandments tends to look like a marriage contract. Tends to look that there's, there's an event about it that speaks of the future. He's coming. You need to have a relationship with God. Paul describes the law as a schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. So it would make sense that the very first five commandments would be relational or encourage relationship. We go into very uh, other aspects, other little pictures, other voices. Uh, Take uh, the book of Ruth, the whole book. The whole book of Ruth is a love story about an unworthy foreigner marrying a kinsman redeemer that brings the blessings of the kinsman redeemer to Marian, the Jewish, the Jewish woman, the Jewish mother-in-law. There's indications in the book of Ruth that Marian, is that the, I have the name right, correct? Oh, sorry, Naomi. Um, forgive me. Ruth and Naomi. Naomi, the Jewish mother-in-law. There's indications in the story that Naomi had never met. Forgive me. Boaz. I've got so many stories in my head. Forgive me. It indicates that she had never met Boaz and how that Ruth was the one that brought them together through the, through the legalities and the hoop jumping that they had to do for Ruth to become a bride. 
Boaz is a picture of Christ. He's coming. Another shout is Isaiah 53. We're all very, no doubt very familiar with Isaiah 53. And, you know, it is so powerful. In my early years as a believer, uh, I came across a testimony of a man, a missionary to the Jewish people in Chicago. His name was Bob Brennan. And he just thrilled me about how his passion was to learn the language and to, to be able to bring that capability that the Lord gave him to minister to the Jews in his hometown, in the back streets, all about. And he was ministering one time to a woman, a Jewish woman, uh, in her home with her family there, other than her husband. And as he was bringing the message of the word of God to her, he was quoting Isaiah 53, reading it. And the husband, and she was being receptive. She was being accepting of the time taken to, to learn from her own word uh, who Jesus is, who the Messiah would be. And so, so he's quoting Isaiah 53. And the husband comes through, and the husband is, doesn't want anything to do with it. And the husband comes through, and he overhears Bob Brennan quoting Isaiah 53. And the husband says, yeah, you don't need to be quoting that New Testament here in my home. Because he believed, Bob Brennan said he believed that he was, the husband thought he may have been speaking from Matthew. And it was interesting to me when I heard that, that the non-believing husband in the Lord Jesus Christ, his Messiah, recognized something from the New Testament rather than from his own Torah. He didn't recognize Isaiah 53. The curious thing about Isaiah 53 is that if it's not rabbinically, nationally rabbinically affected, the rabbis of Israel and the rabbis of Jewish leaders all around, Jewish communities all around the planet discourage strongly or even go as far as banning the reading of Isaiah 53 personally and in the temples. You watch some testimonies. Uh, there's some great testimonies on One for Israel of Jewish people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ and finding out that, oh, who is this person of Isaiah 53? I haven't read this before. And some even said it wasn't allowed to read it before. Isaiah 53 shouts who Jesus is going to be and what he's going to do. He's coming. The Psalms, David depicts many aspects of Jesus, pictures of Jesus coming. Lots of prophecy. In fact, there are 300 prophecies from here to here about Jesus' coming. 300. Some statisticians once took a, a poll of the probability of Jesus. How can I put this? The probability, the statistical probability that Jesus is not the Messiah. That was the premise. Based on only eight prophecies. 
There's 300 to work with. They only took eight. They took eight prophecies and put the statistics to it. And the statistics came out that is one in 10 to the 17th power that Jesus is not the Messiah. So, and they said, what well, well, can you illustrate? So that's a, that's a 10 with 17 zeros behind it. Okay. So they said, what would be an illustration? Well, are we all familiar with what the size of Texas is? I think it's probably about twice the size of Alberta. So it's twice the size of Alberta. And they took a silver coin, a silver dollar, as the example. And they said, in this example, we're going to use a silver coin as an illustration, and it's going to cover the face of Texas. And one to the 10 to the 17th power would cover Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. And the probability that Jesus is not the Messiah would be one of those coins put in that pile somewhere. And then they would mix that pile all over the state of Texas and blindfold a man and tell him to go out and pick the right one. And that's only based on statistics. That's not that's putting the probability in the prophet's hands that they created the story, not that they were inspired by God to have his story revealed. It's an impossibility that Jesus is not the Messiah. It's an impossibility that Jesus is not the Messiah. And the 300 prophecies shout that he's coming. And another instance would be Micah. I'll try to put... Bring this with me. Hopefully I'm not making your eyes glaze over. Ruth, Isaiah, Psalms. Another one in there is the book of Hosea. And Hosea is another story, a love story, actually. a love story that was created by God for a prophet to marry a prostitute and love her. Love her in the way she was and to encourage her to live a life pleasing to God. And Gomer didn't have anything, didn't want anything to do with that righteous life, that holy life. She kept doing her own thing she kept appreciating the bling. She wanted all the good stuff and all the good things in life and kept leaving Hosea. And a thing about her life indicates that as good as it may have seemed, it was a downhill trail. And Hosea, led by the Holy Spirit of God, he instructs Hosea, guides Hosea to put a hedge about Gomer to have none of her intentions succeed. 
because he wanted her home, because he loved her. He wanted her to be part of his life, part of him. And it got to a point where Gomer ended up on the slave trade. And she was being bid on. And she was on the market. And the going rates, there were some people interested, some men interested. There were going rates, and Hosea jumps in and pays ten times the cost of what Gomer would have been going for normally. So the story speaks of the love for his bride, the love for his church, the love for his people who believe in him. He's coming. The story, there's an answer coming. The next point, the next voice. I like how God likes to be exact. And sometimes he works things so that there's no, there's no chance he can be wrong. Right? Did you know that there were two Bethlehems? In scripture, there's two Bethlehems. One in the region, the north region in Israel, uh, belonging to the tribe of Zebulun. And then the one in Judea, Bethlehem, Ephrata. And in Micah, the prophecy is that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem and born in Bethlehem of Ephrata, of Judea. I like it that God creates the setting so that the fulfillment of the prophecy can be exact. You're not going to, despite, despite two Bethlehems, you're not going to be confused because he put it right down to the very spot where Jesus would be born. He's coming. And then it happens. Jesus is born. And the thing about it is when uh, Pastor Jane brought out the timeline and described it that a thousand years is a day and a day is as a thousand years unto the Lord, the time from birth to the cross really in God's perspective was only a short time. And it's a package. The way to look at it is a package. The birth, life, teachings, crucifixion, resurrection are right in a tight package. And the prophecies come true. 60, I believe 60 prophecies came to be at the crucifixion of Christ alone. It happened. And this is our start. This is the beginning of the church. And Thessalonians talks about the church in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, in the verses between 1 and 11. It describes us as children of light, children of the day. 
We're not in the shadow anymore. We're in the day. The revelation of Christ is now shining on this side of the cross, and we're in this. And the mysteries become revealed for what we thought were mysteries. The Gospels speak much about the, much regarding the day of the Lord. Uh, eschatology, the end times, the day of the Lord is that last day, the thousand-year reign. Prior to that is what we call the blessed hope. The, I'm getting ahead of myself a bit here. Paul calls it the blessed hope or caught up, uh, changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, gathered to him. Prior to that, it, the, the, the voices that are speaking to us today about he's coming again. And isn't it interesting? It's always he's coming. He's doing something. As I mentioned before, he's, he's not just sitting back waiting for things to happen. He's actively doing something. He's doing something with the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit to bring us to a point where we can bring others with us. Our testimonies can be powerful. Our testimonies can be impactful. Our testimonies can bring life to other people, other non-believers, other, peop- other believers who are in unbelief trying to live a life coping but not believing. And it's very much relational again. The book of Matthew, Jesus near the end, and it's called the eschatological portion of Matthew. It's just in the last week that Jesus was on the, before the cross. And in Matthew 25, 1 to 13, It speaks of the parable of the bridesmaids, the ten virgins. And it speaks of them being ready and those who are not ready. I believe that portion of scripture is a picture of the nominal, uh, the picture of the nominal action of Christendom. Not everybody who says they're a Christian are necessarily believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're following along. They're caught up in religion. They're, they're choosing to follow a religion because they think that that's the way to do it. And the bridesmaids waiting for the bridegroom to come, there were five of them who were wise and there were five of them who were foolish. And because they weren't ready, because they maybe didn't listen to the shout back here to be prepared in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they were practicing, the wise ones believed that the bridegroom was coming. They believed it. You know, I found what I realized, uh, particularly with our men's breakfast, oftentimes men the men in the, in the church, the men in the body of Christ have a hard time getting their head around that they're a bride, that they're part of the bride, that they're part of the, the bridesmaids. And we have a hard time with that because we don't think like women. Yet Jesus wants us to. Jesus wants us to realize that we are a body to honor him, a body to please him and bless him. And so the bridesmaids, are the five wise ones, they're just ready. They've got the lamps trimmed, and you know, they're just ready. 
And when the bridegroom comes, they head off in the procession with the bride to have the bridegroom and bride be married. And the, the foolish ones didn't have any extra oil. And so they tried to get some from the wise ones, and the wise ones said, no, being very wise. <laughs> we may not have enough for all in the whole procession, the journey to get, and to get to the marriage, to the wedding ceremony. And they told them, go buy some and, and come back. And so they went to buy some, and in the meantime, the bridegroom came, the wise ones went with him, the procession went with the bride to the bridegroom's home that he had prepared, And when the foolish ones came back, they weren't permitted to come in. And it's interesting, they they were told, I never knew you. I don't know you. And they weren't permitted it. And what it tells me is that they were practicing the form. They had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. They weren't ready. They weren't prepared. They didn't know Jesus. And Jesus didn't know them. In John, the book of John, John speaks in John 14, verses 1 to 4, the responsibilities of the bridegroom. And Jesus, these are Jesus' words. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And so the bridegroom, he said... There are words, uh, as I mentioned before, about Paul's words about the blessed hope and the caught up and the gathering to him. Jesus is using a similar term here. Receive you unto myself. Those original words, the Greek and the Hebrew to the Greek to the English, that refers to an action similar to a magnet, a very strong magnet pulling up iron filings. And that speaks of the blessed hope. The world likes to use the word rapture. I prefer using the words in the Bible. So the the rapture of the church, if that's how you know it, the blessed hope caught up, he's coming. The word is letting us know that we don't have to be thinking we're in the dark or that it's a mystery. There are some believers, I've experienced this in other churches back years ago, where they choose everything to be a mystery. They look at the word of God and I don't understand it, so it's a mystery to me. And so everything that might just challenge them to grow and to learn becomes a mystery and they don't have any responsibility to learn it. But we have a God who's willing to give us wisdom We have a God who's willing to give us understanding. We have a God who's willing to put us in the light so that we know. And in, I believe it's in Thessalonians, Paul talks to the believers, and in fact, it may have been the very verses of 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11. 
He says, you are children of the day, children of light, and none of this should surprise you. This should not overtake you. We don't have to be mystery. We want to ask the Lord to help us understand in where we are, where our faith is, where our understanding can be. Ask him for the wisdom. Ask him to see what he wants us to see in that moment, in that scripture, in that revelation, that he's coming. And nowhere did I see that it was designed to make you fear. Nowhere. It's not, and I experienced this with believers too, where they always compared the hardships in their life to be the motivation to be joyous and blessed with rejoicing of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I don't see that there. I see this, that we should be rejoicing as a bride waiting for her husband. I can't wait to see him. I can't wait to be with him. I can't wait to be forever by his side. That's what brings joy. Comparing your hardship to define the joy you're going to experience, I think, is a slap. It's an insult. Oftentimes, we don't have to be experiencing all this crap we choose to be into. We don't have to. And we have a Lord who wants to help us out of it. And we have a God who gives us the worthiness, the identity, the esteem that we are righteous in him. And the last point is found in Revelation 19. Verses 6 to 9. And this is the end time. This is, this is the wedding. He's coming. He's coming. The answer's made. Then he's coming again to the bride in Christ. We have a hope in Jesus that we are going to be with him forever and in his peace and joy. And this is the wedding. Revelation 19, he says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he said unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So there's the the wedding. The events happen. He's coming. The same message. We always use it again, but to us, he's coming. Could be today. Are you ready? 
we already see in Scripture that in Christ we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We have been encouraged many, many times over the past many years that we are as holy as God in Christ. We have that status. We have that place. We have that being. And so what what would the message be in our life here today to be prepared? Well, it brings me back to the Last Supper, again, or the Lord's Supper. When he finishes the supper, he gets on a loincloth and a basin of water and starts washing the disciples' feet. And Peter says to him, Peter says, uh, you shouldn't wash my feet, I should be washing yours. Argues with him. And Jesus says to him, if, if I don't wash your feet, you're not part of me. And Peter says, oh, then wash my whole body, you know, head to toe. Give me, give me the, the scrub of a lifetime. And Jesus encourages them. He says, Peter, you're clean. You're clean, except your feet. And I believe that is an indication. He's, in essence, he's speaking to, pot, to Peter as a bride. Because we walk through this life, the muck, the mire, the messes. And we get our feet dirty. And as we walk through the muck and the mire and the messes, uh, no doubt we're splashing the garments. It's just a picture. It's just an idea. We're splashing the garments. And Jesus says he'll wash our feet. But he also promises that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we need laundering. No doubt every so often. We need to allow the Lord to indicate to us to reveal to us where we've maybe gotten mud on the bridal train or mud on the, on the garment, on the dress. That's what it's called in Jewish. So, there's an invitation today. And that's what the paper is for. And the paper is for you to take a moment with the Holy Spirit. And I don't want names on it. And the Lord doesn't want names on it. That's not what it's about. It's not going to be graded. It's not a test. And you know what? You don't even have to write in English or whatever language you prefer. The Lord wants you to put something, to start something today. He wants you to start, scribble, scribble something on that piece of paper that means what the Lord's going to indicate to you of what stain you need to take care of today. Things that have been attached to you. Things that maybe you've picked up from the cross again. That you laid down once, but you picked it up again. 
and it's staining the garments. Because in this life, the stained garments or the garments that we wear are a testimony to the unbelievers around us. That we have a God who's blessing us and preparing us and giving us righteousness. Nobody's going to see these. You're going to end up disposing of them. And the invitation is going to be for you to come. And Dana, if I can ask you, my request is that you play. Jesus, I'm so in love with you. And as you're, it, you can participate this, in this if you want or not. There's no pressure here. There's only you and the Lord. But what I find is sometimes when you write something down that you need to do something with, it has an impact. And when you take the action of faith and dispose of it, it tends to be a lasting impact. So take a moment. I'm going to go get the disposal. I'll be right back. Take a moment. Ask the Lord, what do you want me to deal with today? What what item in this life I have in Christ, in the garments I'm wearing, what do you want me to clean up today? take the stain away because your promises to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. The cross was a place where all the dirty stuff in all our lives could be placed, could be cast as believers, he wants you to be the glorious bride here, now. He wants you to be the bridal procession, making an impact on the world that we are blessed and going to have a blessed future with our husband, our bridegroom, Jesus. Brother Gene and Sharon, could I ask you to come? There's going to be some people on the sides to help if you want someone to pray with regarding what you're dealing with. And Arnold and Linda, could I have you come over the side? Come as the Lord leads you. Pick up the piece of paper. Put something on it.
crumple it up. Crumple it up. And cast it. Because he's coming. And he's coming soon. All the prophecies to this point in time have been fulfilled. And he wants us to be prepared for this world to be attracted to a wedding party. Praise God. Perversion, no deviation that he can't fathom. Cast, casting off the stains and casting off the attachments and casting off the burrs and all that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Hallelujah, Jesus is coming. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, as Paul, or sorry, as John declared in Revelation. He was he was excited. John went through some hard stuff. But he was excited that his bridegroom was coming. Church, beloved body of Christ you are blessed God has his mind on you our father heavenly father has you in his heart at all times and he wants the best for you father seal holy spirit seal the action the action of faith we took today to cast off stain on the garment you've given us and thank you that the promise in the end is that it will be white and clean and fine a glorious bride for a glorious savior 
Bless us in the week to come, Lord. Bless us in the times to come. And we joyously look forward to your return. I'm excited, Lord. I pray that you'll help all these have excitement the same. Thank you. In Jesus' precious name, powerful name, amen. Thank you, church. Thank you, Arnold and Linda. Thank you, Jean and Sharon. Do you want me to finish? Just dismiss. Church, have a wonderful week. Don't let the cold define your happiness. The weather, the weather reports lately say that uh, it's not going to change in five minutes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you are blessed over the week. Thank you for attending. Thank you. You're a blessing to me.